Matthew uh, sits down to write his gospel. And, and he's inspired by the Spirit to do this. I, I want you to realize that all the scriptures, uh, both Old and New Testament, are inspired by the Holy Spirit. But as Matthew sits down to write it, at least I'm of the opinion that he has Mark's gospel in front of him. He's familiar with Mark's gospel. Mark had written his gospel, the church father says, uh, say as, as uh, to preserve the memoirs of Peter. And whether he wrote that gospel right before Peter died or right after he died, we don't know. But, but Mark's gospel had become kind of the foundational gospel of the early church. And so Matthew sets down to write his using... Mark as kind of the pattern that he's going to follow. Luke will do the exact same thing. Matthew will expand Mark's gospel for a Jewish audience, Jewish Christians in particular. Luke will do it for Gentile Christians. And when I say expand it, Luke, of course, will take it way beyond the life of Jesus into the life of the early church all the way through Paul's imprisonment in Acts chapter 28. But as Matthew is writing his gospel... One of the things I love about Matthew is that he, he layers things. That's one of the things that you'll see in Matthew's gospel is he's got so many different things that are going on behind the scene that if you don't see them, oftentimes you'll miss them really, really easy. He begins with the genealogy of Jesus. Goes into the birth narrative. He then tells about the coming of the wise men. Very important story in his gospel about Jesus fleeing down to Egypt. We'll talk more about that here in just a second. He then goes into John the Baptist, and whereas Mark will summarize John the Baptist in such a brief fashion, Matthew will expand it tremendously all the way to the baptism of Jesus, as we heard this morning in our memory verse from last Sunday's lesson. And then he begins to talk about Jesus' ministry. And in Matthew chapter 4, you have a passage that is so important for understanding Matthew's gospel. It is a summary statement. Now, summary statements are important. Summary statements help you understand where authors are going when they're writing. And so in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, you have this summary statement of what Jesus did during the three years of his ministry. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now, what's interesting is that Matthew's not the only one who does this. You turn over to Acts chapter 1. Luke will do the exact same thing, looking back on his first gospel, the book of Luke. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. You go back to the Matthew 4 text, you get the same thing. What he taught and what he did. Here's what he did and what he taught. And, and what you find in this is that in both of these writers' minds, Jesus is a man both of word and deed. And it's important that we see that. You know, oftentimes I see Christians who basically try to take what, what being a Christian is all about to one of two extremes. They go either way off to the left or they go off way off to the right. Some will say, listen, it's all about what you preach. You've got to preach the truth. You've got to preach the gospel. Now, is preaching the truth and the gospel important? Absolutely, you have to do it. But you can't 
stop there. And then you have others that say, no, what's important is you've got to go out here and you've got to set an example. There's an old saying that says, listen, always preach the gospel and if you have to, use words. I disagree with that saying. Not if you have to. It's part of it. You can't just set a good example and hope that people will say, tell me why you live the way you live. There has to be this combination. I love the fact that Jesus, later on in Matthew's gospel, he'll talk about the Pharisees. And notice what he says beginning in verse 2. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Notice that word Moses' seat. That is a literal place that people in the ancient world would sit. Here is a a chair. This is a, a stone chair from the synagogue in Chorazin. You've probably heard of Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Chorazin. One of those villages that Jesus did a lot of his preaching and teaching at. And it literally says on it, Moses' seat. And it was in the front of the synagogue where our pulpits are. In other words, in, in New Testament times, the preacher in the synagogue would preach sitting down. Like, I like that. I love that concept. I mean, I can go a lot longer sitting down than I can standing up. Elders will probably keep me standing up then, you know. But, but here's Jesus, and he says, listen, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they sit in Moses' seat. They tell you what Moses said, and therefore you must do what they say. But notice what he says. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Boy, those of us who preach, we know what it's like to have people who say, but preacher, are you practicing what you preach. And and so the practice is as important as the preaching is. Now, Matthew does a marvelous job here in designing his gospel to illustrate both what Jesus taught and what he did. Now you say, what do you mean designing his gospel? Well, he'll begin by saying Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues. Now you could pause right here and just ask a question. What did he teach? Matthew says, can I give you an example? You see, this is Matthew chapter 4. He will immediately go into Matthew chapter 5, and we have what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And what is the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's a a sermon Jesus, he preached. No, it's Matthew's example of what Jesus taught. In other words, Matthew is trying to say to us, if you want to know what Jesus went around in all the synagogues teaching, here's an example of that. And listen, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, that message we call the Sermon on the Mount, is one of the most profound messages ever delivered in human history. Boy, you want to talk about Matthew putting in just three short chapters a tremendous, a tremendous amount of material. Boy, he did it. Now, what's interesting is that when you turn to Matthew chapter 5, you see him sitting down to teach the people. Now, in this instance, he goes up on a mountain. Notice. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Last, I thought he went into the synagogues. He did. But this is where you've got that layering taking place. You see, one of the things that Matthew wants his audience to hear, remember, he's writing to Jews, Jewish believers. And one of the things he wants his Jewish believers to understand is that Jesus is the new Moses. 
You see, Moses in the book of Deuteronomy had said that God will one day raise up a prophet like unto me. You need to listen to him. Matthew takes that and he says, Can I tell you the story of the new Moses? That's why, for instance, in Matthew chapter 2, after, after the visit of the wise men, where does Joseph and Mary go? They go down into Egypt. And then God does what? He calls his son out of Egypt. Just as Moses had gone and got the Israelites out, God goes and calls Jesus out. Moses, when he comes out of Egypt the first time, what does he do? He goes into the wilderness. When he comes out with the Israelites, what does he do? He wanders in the wilderness. What does Jesus do? In chapter 4, he goes into the wilderness. Moses, 40 years. Jesus, 40 days. There's no accident there. And then, of course, Moses goes to Mount Sinai, goes up on the mountain. Why? To receive the law. Jesus goes up on a mountain in Galilee. Why? To deliver the law. You've got 12 tribes that Moses leads out of Egypt. You have 12 apostles that Jesus calls to follow him around. I mean, they just keep going over and over, the illustrations are. But what you have in this remarkable sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is, is Jesus' basic message that he taught in these synagogues. It begins with character. He says, can I just tell you that, that it's all about what's here? It's what's in the heart? He begins with those beautiful beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he goes to talk about the importance of example. And then he says, listen, it's not what you do on the outside. You've heard that it's said, don't kill. He says, listen, I don't want you to even be angry. Don't commit adultery. It begins with lust. Don't lust. He goes into chapter 6 and he begins to talk about those Christian habits, at that time Jewish habits, of prayer and almsgiving. And he says, listen, those are important as long as you do them the right way. And then after teaching them how to pray, he said, let's talk about money. Now, what's interesting about all of this is that teaching becomes an important part of the life of the church. It's as important a part about the life of the church today as it was 2,000 years ago. You know, Matthew ends his gospel with these words. Jesus giving the great commission, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them that continued ministry that we're doing even today. Hebrews 5, in the midst of incredible chaos, the Hebrew writer says, and writes to, to Jewish, again, Jewish Christians, and he says, listen, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the elementary truths of the of, of, the, of, of God. I mean, here were people that should have been already teaching, but they needed to be taught instead. That's why going back and learning what Jesus taught is so important, because here's one of the roles that we have got to fulfill in the role, in, in the world. We have got to be people who can present to people we come in contact the difference between the way of God and the way of the world. I think about just one coming out of, the, out of the Sermon on the Mount. No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one, despise the other. But then he says, listen, for so many of you, for so many of us, it comes down to who's going to be your God. Is it going to be the Lord God or is it going to be the almighty dollar? And isn't it interesting that we call it the almighty dollar? I mean, put real simple... 
Paul would say those who want to get rich fall into temptation, a trap, and the many foolish and harmful desires that plague people into ruin and destruction. I mean, if we were to take and put anything up here other than to get rich, most of us would say, wow, we need to avoid that. We don't want to fall into anything that's a temptation, a trap that's going to create foolish and harmful desires and that plunge people into ruin and destruction. As long as you don't put people who want to get rich. Because if we were honest with each other and walked around the room today, and simply ask one another, would you like to be rich? What would we say? I mean, think about that. I, I still struggle every time I see the Publishers Clearinghouse advertisement come on, on television. You know, boy, I, I need to do that. I mean, I mean, they're fixing to be visiting somebody's house by, by the end of August. I want them to visit my house. $7,000 a week. Paul would say, you might want to think about that. You see, that's what the teaching of Jesus is all about. It's about contrasting to the world, the way of the cross, as, as opposed to the way of the world. And that's what Jesus calls all of us to do. That's why teaching is so important. There's nothing wrong with money, Jesus would say. What's wrong is when we end up serving money instead of money serving God. And notice, I put God there intentionally. The second thing that Matthew says Jesus did was that he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. Now, what does it mean to live under the reign of God? You know, in, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew will talk about the kingdom of heaven. Mark's gospel and Luke will talk about the kingdom of God. And, and while... Growing up, I heard that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is, is simply another way of saying the church. While in one sense, that is obviously true. In another sense, the kingdom of heaven is much broader. It has to do with the whole idea of bringing everything in creation back under the authority of God, under the reign and rule of God. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, when you pray, pray this, your kingdom come. What is that? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One of the things that we as Christians have got to realize that we've got a message for the world. Jesus said, repent. Why? Because the reign of heaven has come near. Uh, in Luke's gospel, Jesus would say to the people there in Jerusalem, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. You know, for, for many, many years as a preacher, I saw this very narrowly focused. I saw him as talking to us as individuals and saying, you know what, you need to repent of the sin that's in your life. It's that personal repentance that Jesus is calling you to. And while that is obviously true in one sense of the word, there's a much bigger picture, once again, kind of like this kingdom of God concept. And the bigger picture has to do with the way you look at life. When he says repent, he's saying change the way you think. Change the way you think. Why? Because God's reign is coming. If I could speak to modern day America, especially modern day Christians in America, I would say to them, it's high time you quit putting your trust in America and put your trust in the kingdom of God. You know, I, I find us oftentimes as, as Christians thinking that we can somehow save the world 
at the ballot box. That somehow if we just get the right person in the office that we can then put the right laws in place and that we can save the world. And listen, I'm not against good people being in office and enacting good laws to govern our land. Don't misunderstand me. But if we want to save the world, it is through the preaching of the gospel. It's not voting for the right candidate. We do more for the kingdom, for the world that we live in when we bring one person to Jesus than voting a thousand people into office. And we need to understand that. And that's what Paul was, excuse me, what Jesus was saying here in Luke 13. He was saying to the Jews of his day, listen, if you think the direction you're going is what God wants you to do, then you're going to end up like these people. You're going to perish, those who this tower had fallen on. We've got a message to the world, and that message is, is that in this life we've got one of two pathways. The pathway of God, the pathway of the world. We've got, we got to call people to the pathway of God. Jesus would say to his apostles there the last night of his life, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That concept, I am the way, will become a way of kind of describing Christianity in its earliest days. Paul would describe himself as a follower of the way. I mean, Christianity become known simply as a way of living that was so different than other, every other way of living that people were drawn to it. And then finally, Jesus went about healing every disease and sickness among the people. Last, I can see us teaching. I can see us preaching the kingdom of God. But you know, we can't go out and heal the diseases and sickness among the people. If we could, it'd be wonderful right now. And you know, we can't do it the way Jesus did it. But it doesn't mean that we can't do it. In fact, one of the things that you'll find in the Gospels is that the Gospels will oftentimes come in here and where Matthew will use this language, they will simply plug in the concept of doing good. You see, after the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, Matthew then records examples of Jesus' healing in chapters 8 and 9. In other words, here's an example of his teaching. Here's an example of his preaching over in Matthew chapter 10. Here's an example of his healing, Matthew 8 and 9. One, one of my favorite is the first miracle that Jesus kind of performs, healing miracle, is the healing of the leper. And you have this beautiful story of a man who comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I'm willing. And he does it. No, we can't make people clean like this. But we can reach out to lepers. I can't heal people of the COVID-19 virus. But we can let them know that we, we love them and care for them in whatever way that we possibly can. Paul would describe it this way, for we are God's handiwork. I love that word, handiwork. It's literally a word which means masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus. What? To do good works. You see, Jesus could feed the hungry with five loaves and two fish. We can feed the hungry. It's just going to take a lot more than that. Jesus could heal the sick with simply a touch. We can heal the sick through medical missions through people who are trained to reach out in the name of Jesus Christ to bring healing to the body. Jesus could show love in, in fantastic ways. Dying on the cross, we show love by picking up our cross and following Him. I love a simple way that Jesus summarized what we can do if we want to do what Jesus did. 
I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Can we do that? Do you know someone struggling right now that could use just a meal, a meal that you could prepare and take over to their house? I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I wonder how many clothes we have in our closets that could be used to take care of those that need clothes. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. Put very simply, Jesus says, listen, here's what I'm all about. And I hope that you'll follow me and that'll be what you're all about. Preaching, teaching, and doing good. It was good enough for Jesus. I hope he'll be good enough for you. Let's pray. Father, you've shown us how Jesus lived. And for that we say thank you. Help us, Father, now to follow him. To pick up our crosses. To preach your word. To teach your word. In both word and deed. And then to do good. So that people will give you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.